For the last seven weeks, we've been looking at just one chapter in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. And this is a letter from the prophet Jeremiah as a word of encouragement uh, to God's people who were in exile. And what they learned in that, I hope you are learning as we have been going through these weeks of Jeremiah 29, uh, because there's a lot that applies to our life today. You know, God's message to his people was a positive one back then and still is. Live life that is full, build, plant, eat, love, multiply, pray for your community, but above all else, keep God at the center of all things. That's kind of the message in a nutshell. So I invite you to enter into worship today uh, with hope in your hearts. For something happens here that uh, reminds us that we can live Uh, life as God has designed it for us. God has made a promise to us that he will always be faithful to us, and we can trust that promise. So let's bow in a moment of prayer, shall we? Lord God, we know that you are always more ready to pour out your blessings on us than we are to even seek them, and you desire to give us more than we deserve. So help us so to seek you that we may truly find you, to ask Uh, that we may joyfully receive from you and to knock so that the door of your mercy may be opened for us. We love you and we honor you this day in all that we say and do, and it's through Jesus Christ our Lord that we pray. Amen. We are in the final two weeks of this series called The Power of Hope. And I hope you've been learning some things about God and about the way God works in our life and through these experiences of the Hebrew people from Jeremiah chapter 29. But here's my takeaway of this story. Sometimes things are not as we want them to be in life. Despite our best efforts, our circumstances in life can get very complicated, causing us sometimes to even lose hope. And in this chapter we're studying together in Jeremiah they are in the midst of a community, of a, of a place that is being disassembled by the Babylonians. And false prophets are uh, telling them, don't give up, there's still hope. God is going to send a miracle of deliverance as he has in the past. But Jeremiah comes along with this message and says, there's no last minute miracle on the way. The judgment of God is falling upon you. And in chapter 9, he writes to these exiles who are being deported to Babylon, and he gives them this solemn message. But in the middle of it all, we find this remarkable verse of comfort and hope. It's verse 11. And in looking at this chapter, we can learn something, I believe, about responding to negative circumstances in our life. When we are not where we want to be in life, we can still have hope. Remember that these words were spoken to a people who were displaced, defeated, depressed, And they had hung their harps, the scripture says, in the willow tree and had lost their ability to sing the songs of God. But with the Lord, we are discovering nothing in this life is ever hopeless. Verse 11 says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Hope is a powerful force in our lives and it comes only from God himself. Pray with me, will you? Heavenly Father, I thank you that your perfect plan and purpose for us can never be frustrated and that you are working quietly in the background in our lives in order to 
bring about um, progress toward an ultimate goal. And I praise you that you have given us life. You've given us a new creation in Christ. And thank you that you have a special purpose for each of us in this life. Thank you that by your grace you are carrying out that purpose and that Christ is all and in all. And I pray that this may be realized in our lives as we worship today. Enable and equip us, we pray, to fulfill the plan and the purpose that you have for us. And that you use, uh, help us to use every gift, every talent that you have graciously given to us to your praise and glory. Help us to fulfill all that you would have us to do in our life. And may we be obedient to your voice as we seek to carry out your purposes. May we give thanks in all things and listen to the voice of your Holy Spirit. And may we hold fast to that which is good and abstain from evil, knowing that that is your will for our life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our focus today is on one verse of Scripture. It's a promise of God to his people. So I'm inviting you to read it along with me. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. We've come at last to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, and this is one of the most loved verses, I think, in all the Bible. I've often heard this verse quoted. I've seen it on signs and posters and plaques. Many Christians commit this verse to memory. We inscribe them on graduation cards. We share these words with people who are sick or discouraged or in some sort of difficult situation. For many people, this is the only verse from the book of Jeremiah that they may know. And rightfully so, because it makes a wonderful promise that believers have claimed for hundreds of years. It has been a lifeline for people, especially when going through hard times. But we will never properly understand this verse unless we know something about its background. The single most important fact is that it was written to Jewish exiles in Babylon who had been forcibly removed from Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar. And having been uprooted from all that they held dear, they now live hundreds of miles away from home in the very heart of a, of a worldly pagan culture. All their dreams and hopes have been smashed. Deep inside, they must have wondered, how could God have let this happen? If we are truly his people, how did we end up here? And they wondered if God had forgotten them. In all their confusion, in all their despair, they made two very human mistakes. One, they thought they would never end up in Babylon. And that led them to a sense of false confidence. And two, they thought they would never get out of Babylon once they were there. And that led them to a spirit of despair. We face the same danger when we expect what God has not promised or when we refuse to believe what God has promised. Years ago, there was a little Sunday school chorus that had an opening line that said, every promise in the book is mine. The, the book being the Bible, God's word to which we might answer yes, but not every promise means what we think it means. Our danger with Jeremiah 29, 11 is that we will quote it 
without considering its context. We've all heard it said that when we hit rock bottom, there's nothing to do but look up. Well, here's a message for people who had hit rock bottom. And thanks be to God, it is a message of enormous hope. As we think about this verse today, I invite you to keep two things in mind. God will not always do what we expect him to do. God will not always do what we expect him to do. But God will always do what he says he will do. And here's what we do know. First of all, all, God is thinking about us all the time. He says, for I know the plans I have for you. You see, God thinks about us. That may be the most important statement that you will ever hear. The God of the universe thinks about you all the time. He considers us, he knows us, he remembers us, he keeps us on his mind. He knows who we are, he knows where we are. Not for one second are we ever lost or forgotten For his heart is so big and his knowledge is so vast that no one ever gets lost in the shuffle. We don't always think about each other. We routinely get preoccupied with life. And we sometimes even forget the people and the events closest to us. We forget birthdays, don't we? We forget anniversaries or graduations. Valentine's Day or Mother's Day may creep up on us. And we even have daytimers and smartphones and calendars to help us remember these things, to send us reminders, and yet we still forget. But the truth is, most of us are better at remembering bad things that happen in our life, aren't we? We recall the hard things, the the insults of others against us. I've met a few people who seem to have a foolproof grievance meter that remembers every mean thing that anyone ever said or did to them, even the things that happened 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Some people have memories like an elephant. An elephant, they say, never forgets, uh, although I'm not sure who they are that's, that ever said that or how they know an elephant never forgets, but some people remember every rotten thing that's ever happened to them in life and they nurse those grudges for years. And even when we do have good thoughts about each other, we tend to forget after a while. That's why we say, out of sight, out of mind. But God never forgets his people. Even though he has the whole world to rule, he never forgets his people. The Hebrew text of verse 11 contains the idea of thoughts or thinking or plans three times. God is not just saying, I've got plans for you folks. He's saying, I have been thinking about you. Now that's much better because that is an extremely personal statement. A boss may say to an employee, I've got plans for you. That might mean a whole lot of things. But when the boss says, hey, I've been thinking about you today, that may mean something else entirely. The Jews really needed to know this because they were in exile in Babylon They were far from home. They were carried off against their will. They were held as slaves under the absolute power of the Babylonian king, and they were only able to do what they were permitted to do. And God has just said, you'll be returning home one of these days, but it's going to be 70 years, which was good news and bad news. Good because it meant that they wouldn't be in Babylon forever. 
but bad because 70 years was a long time to be in exile. And God says, you, you think I've forgotten about you, don't you? You know you're here because you forgot about me. That's why you're here. You forgot about me. And it's true that I'm punishing you for your disregard of my commands, but my punishment does not diminish my affection for you. You are forever in my thoughts. You are still my people. I have not forgotten you. And I find great comfort in the following truth. God knows what he's thinking even when we don't. Many times we say, Lord, what are you doing here? You know, why is this happening to me? And because so much of life makes no sense to us, the good, the bad, the happy, the sad, all get jumbled up together, sometimes with no rhyme or reason. And even if we say to ourselves, God has a plan, it rarely is a plan that's clear to us. But God knows what he's thinking, even when his thoughts are hidden from us. He has he has us constantly on his mind. Listen to how the famous preacher of a few generations ago, Charles Spurgeon, puts it. He says, the child playing on the ship's deck does not understand the tremendous engine that is the throbbing heart of that stately ocean liner, and yet all is safe, for the engineer, the captain, and the pilot are in their places and know very well what is being done. So the child need not trouble herself about things too great for her understanding. We know so little about life. We understand so little of God's plan. We have so many questions. However, this much is clear. God is thinking about us always. Secondly, God's thoughts toward us are always good. They are plans for good, he says, and not for disaster. It's not enough to know that God is just thinking about us. We need to know what he's thinking, and in this case, he makes it clear, plans for good and not for disaster. There are some other translations of the scripture that render this phrase differently. Plans for your welfare and not for evil. Plans to take care of you. Plans not to abandon you. Plans for well-being and not for trouble. And I think it answers the greatest question, is God for us or is he against us? The 18th century German philosopher Lessing asked, is this a friendly universe? Here we have God's answer. All his thoughts move toward one expected end. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens for no purpose at all. And as one writer said, every affliction is both timed and measured. We will never properly understand Jeremiah 29, 11 if we think it's some kind of divine rabbit's foot to protect us from pain or keep us from suffering. Remember that this verse was given to the Jews while they were in Babylon to give them hope that they were not forgotten and the Babylon, that the Babylon experience would not last forever. This verse would provide great encouragement to the Jews. I sent you to Babylon. I'm thinking about you while you're there. I have not forgotten you. I am with you in that place. I will give you a future in Babylon, and I will one day bring you home again. Mostly, it's God's way of saying, I still love you, even though you've blown it, and blown it badly. I still have great plans for you in the future, and the future starts now, not 70 years from now. But still we wonder, don't we? 
It often seems like the devil whispers in our ear, you know, when we're going through hard times and he causes discouragement, which I think may be Satan's chief weapon. It causes us to doubt God. So the next time the devil comes to you with a dark insinuation, tell him that the Lord's thoughts about you are not of evil. Drive him away with that. When he whispers his foul suggestions, say, hey, it's not a disaster. God cannot have an evil thought toward his own people. The God who let his own son die for us cannot think anything but good for me. And then what is God trying to do when he allows his people to go through hard times? What's happening when we're suffering deeply? I think there's some answers to that question. One, God may be trying to to purge us of sin or to purify us of immorality. Two, God may be using suffering to test our faith. Will we still obey God even in the darkness? Will we serve God when things aren't going our way? Will we hold on to the truth when we feel like giving up? Three, God uses times of difficulty often to humble us. When things are going well, we tend to get pretty puffed up about all our accomplishments, but when the darkness falls, we're on our knees crying out for God. Four, God uses hard times to prepare us to minister to others. He comforts us so that we may comfort others. And I know many Christians whose greatest ministry has come from sharing with others how God has helped them through a time of crisis. Five, God uses hard times to prepare us for a new understanding of his character. It's about being in the furnace. And when we're going through the rough places that we discover God's goodness in a way that we will never experience it any other way. As a pastor, I can tell you that I have been with people in all sorts of traumatic experiences and circumstances over the years, including the death of a child or a parent through a painful divorce, through times of illness or surgery, and even through ideas of suicide or battles with addiction. And one man said that he was glad to see the previous year end because it had been filled with so much pain. The whole year he had been living on the brink, but that's not so bad, he said, because it was out on the brink of life that I discovered the grace of God. You see, hard times helped him to see how much he needed the Lord, and his pain taught him that he was like a helpless baby, totally dependent on God. And on one level, we all know that's true. It's just that we forget until life begins to fall apart around us. But here's the third point. God intends to give us a future, and that future is filled with hope. I was fascinated to discover that some versions of the Bible in this phrase, to give you a future and hope, have been translated to give you an expected end. That's actually a good way to translate the original Hebrew. God is not just giving us a vague promise that things are going to get better sometime, somewhere, in some situations. That's true, of course, but this verse has a very specific focus. God had an appointed end for his people, and nothing was going to hinder them from reaching that appointed end. And though they couldn't see it at the time, held as they were under total Babylonian domination, 70 years down the road, the same God who raised up a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, to judge them would raise up another pagan king, Cyrus, to, to deliver them. And neither king was aware 
that they were part of God's plan. Each person acted according to his own free will, and God worked through their decisions to bring about release and redemption for his people. The end they expected would come, though not exactly as they expected it, and not for 70 years. They would see the end that God always intended because God has no unfinished plans. They would eventually see it from beginning to end. Seen in that light, Jeremiah 29, 11 becomes a word of great comfort, especially when we're going through hard times, because it teaches us that God thinks of us, that God's thoughts toward us are always good, and that when his purposes have been completed, he will bring our troubles to their appointed end. And this is the hope and the future that we all need. Well, what then should be our response to all of this? How can we apply the promise of this verse to our own life? First, our greatest need is to submit ourselves to our Heavenly Father and to say very simply, Lord, you know all things. Even though I don't, you do. You see what is ahead of me even when everything is pretty dark to me. You have a purpose even when my life seems to be going around in circles. Nothing that's happening to me can come close to me by chance. So I bow down before you today and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that is a prayer that all of us can pray every day. But secondly, if this verse is true, then our position ought to be one of ever-increasing hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I admit that it's hard to do when we're suffering when we see a child suffering from an illness, when our marriage is falling apart, when our career dissolves, when we can't pay our bills, when we suffer rejection from those we thought we could trust. But we live in a fallen world and we ourselves are fallen people. We are not yet what we could be or should be or someday will be. And there is no Bible verse that can take away the pain of this world. But Jeremiah 29, 11 leads us out of the darkness and into the light. It reminds us that we are not people of the darkness. We are children of the light. And I like the words of Proverbs 4, 18 that say, the way of the righteous is like the first gleam of the dawn, which shines ever brighter until the full day. Let me quote again from the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. We are not driven into growing darkness. We are led into increasing light. There is always something to be hoped for in the Christian life. Let us not look toward the present or the future with any kind of fear because there is nothing for us to dread. Now when we read a verse like Jeremiah 29, 11, we ought to be asking ourselves, what difference does it make being a Christian? We suffer as other people suffer. We get sick. We face troubles. We go through the full range of human experiences like everybody else. Ask the Christians in Sudan if they know anything about suffering. Ask the Coptic Christians in Egypt what it's like to take a stand and follow Jesus. See, our brothers and sisters around the world face trouble every day because of their faith. But let me say again that I have no magic verse 
that can remove all of our troubles, that wipes away all of our tears, that resolves all of our conflicts, or brings us quickly out of the furnace of life. If anything, Jeremiah 29, 11 is meant to help us while we're in the middle of the struggle with the certain truth that we're there for a purpose. And it won't last forever. And in the end, our God will be glorified. What difference does, it, does being a Christian make? Well, Jesus Christ died. He rose from the dead. In his death, he defeated sin. In his resurrection, he defeated death. Our two greatest enemies lie at the feet of Jesus, sin and death. He utterly defeated them both. And the Lord Jesus has purchased us with his own blood and brought us into God's family, guaranteeing us salvation. No wonder the Bible says, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? If we know Jesus, we will have what we need in this life and when we need it. And that means if we find ourselves in the furnace today of pain or difficulty or sickness or loneliness, that in some way this whole thing is not clear to us. Know that we are where we are and God knows where we are today. That was true of the Jews in Babylon. That's true of you and me. When wherever life has taken us, we can say it another way. If we needed to be somewhere else, we would probably be somewhere else in life because God has providential oversight of our life. We can either believe that or not. If we don't, we're often going to end up unhappy, frustrated, miserable, filled with doubt, given to anger, and prone to seeking quick fixes in life instead of waiting on God. But if we believe that, then we will wait patiently for the Lord, believing that wherever we are today, God understands. And there will be a day when God will finally bring us home. We're not there yet, but we will be. Fear not, child of God. No one knows what a day may bring. Who knows if, if even you and I will be here next week. But our God is faithful to keep every one of his promises. Nothing can happen to us except it first pass through the hands of a loving God. So if your way is dark today, keep on believing. And when the trial is over, you will say what the saints have said in every age, the Lord was with me all the way. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we get scared and nervous about the future. But we know that the future is in your hands. So be with us as we go through this day and all the days ahead. Help us to make good decisions. Be with us each step of the way. We know that your plans are for our good. Thank you for giving us hope. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.